Welcome to Exec Insights, conversations about Australian business and the changing world, brought to you from QUT Executive Education. I'm Kate Joyner from QUT's Graduate School of Business. Perhaps the most difficult job of a CEO is to bring their organisation on a journey of change. It's never easy, as Martin Moore, CEO of CS Energy, shared with our MBA students and alumni earlier today. His message was that those leaders who claim to have turned their organisations around in a year or less are probably engaging in spin doctoring. CS Energy is a merchant generator here in Queensland which operates and trades electricity from a portfolio of power stations. As we all know from observing current debates, the energy industry is in a period of fascinating transformation. Martin was generous enough to share his insights about cultural change. He has a career history of senior roles in the energy, resources and transport industries. He is also part of our alumni as a graduate of our executive MBA program. Okay, Martin, so Martin's just come from a presentation for us with our, some of our MBA current students and our MBA alumni, and his theme was uh, leadership, what it takes to change a company's culture. But you did say at the beginning that you were a bit jet lagged having come back from a trip to America. So was that business or pleasure, Martin? It was all pleasure. I happened to be married to a Bostonian. Ah, so uh, so what you do an annual pilgrimage back there. Love Boston. It's one of my mm. favourite cities in the world. Mm. Um, ironically, I've always wanted to live there for a few years, but uh, having married a woman from there, she won't go back. She's, she actually, she's, actually, she's actually been living in Brisbane for almost 10 years ah. and just loves the place. Okay. Does that mean you're a Queenslander, Martin? No. No? Funnily enough, okay. I, was, I was born and bred in Sydney. Right. So I spent my first almost 30 years in Sydney. So I'm sorry about your loss last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's funny you should mention that, Kate, because yeah. I decided many years ago that since I was probably going to move to a few different cities during my career, mm. I would always support the local teams no matter what. It's probably So it's state of policy. origin. I'm, I'm Maroons all the way. Don't you worry. Yeah. Well, yes, you can say that now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they'd, uh, if they'd lost last night, you might revert to your blues. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no, it's not going to happen. I'm not a turncoat. You're not a turncoat. Oh, I like to hear about that. So um, it was a stunning win, actually, but that's a whole other podcast. So I'm sure someone's doing that today. But it seemed uh, like some of your career choices I can see have certainly been um, Queensland companies. So your last one was um, Queensland Rail or did you come into Queensland Rail and it became Horizon? How did that work? Yeah, so I joined QR in uh, 2008, mid-2008, ahead of the privatisation. Mm. And um, uh, obviously the government uh, at that stage wasn't talking about privatisation, but we figured it might be on the cards given who the chief executive was, Lance Hockridge. And he was putting together a team that could um, change the organisation uh, commercially and culturally and make it viable for a privatisation transaction. And so I came in in 2008. We separated out the passenger business, which was really the service-oriented government business. It still remains in government ownership uh, in early 2010. And then in uh, late 2010, we took uh, the commercial part, the freight organisation, through to one of Australia's largest IPOs in mm. uh, late 2010. Mm. And uh, your theme today, which we'll get to in a moment, is about um, cultural change, of it. so changing the organisation as well as, I suppose, should I say, pimping the assets to get them ready for sale. So did you have a similar process um, with uh, getting the Horizon um, IPO in terms of um, making presenting an organisation that's the best it can possibly be for sale? Yes, and I think there's a little bit of a balanced tread there. So yes, you have to make the organisation look compelling to mm. a, a prospective buyer. By the same token, you don't want them to think that all of the upside's been taken out of the organisation. 
they need to have some upside that's going to create value after they actually own the company. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So there's some potential value add. Just there like is. you're renovating a house. They Absol- say there's, absolutely. There's room, there's room for more development. Absolutely. <laughs> and don't overcapitalise. Yeah. So that must have been an exciting ride, I'm thinking. Very exciting. exciting. Yeah. It doesn't happen often in a career, I think, that um, you get to see that result, um, that IPO sale. No, it doesn't. And look, I was enormously fortunate. I worked with some incredibly talented people inside uh, Horizon, previously QR National. Um, I was given an enormous number of opportunities to in my five years there. So I went in there to actually run their shared services. Um, yet when the privatisation was announced, I was uh, acting in the CFO role for a period of time. And then post privatisation, I went and led a sales and marketing function, which was um, just outstanding. I hadn't done that before mm. and uh, very, very exciting, very rewarding. So I was very fortunate to have the opportunities I did. Mm. So you've actually worked in a number of functions. So certainly IT, um, marketing. Um, project management. Um, so I think that's good uh, preparation for a C, uh, for CEO role, I think, to master those kind of um, organisational functions. Would that be your view as well? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the case, Kate. Uh, certainly my agility is what executive search consultants point to and says, you know, that's your skill. Your ability as being to agile. move around um, yeah. Yeah, di- through different organisational functions. Through mm. different functions and also through different industries. So even mm-hmm. since I came to Queensland 15 or so years ago, I've worked in mining, insurance, transportation, and energy. Mm. So, so you know, in, in executive roles. So the ability to move between uh, different industries and different functions is actually, you know, quite a quite a beneficial skill to have. I think. I think so, and it does um, it does actually uh, form a nice link with our last podcast, which was about uh, in the twenty first century, how should we be thinking about our careers? Um, and Ruth Bridgestock, who was our last um, guest, she was talking about. It's almost like that Steve Jobs idea about having lots of dots to join. So if you have experience about uh, through a lot of functions, through a lot of industries, that's the kind of um, breadth that means you can do. You can combine those sets of knowledges in a useful way for the 21st century. Mm. I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> but look, I have I have yeah. two uh, two growing daughters, wonderful wonderful daughters, uh, mm. 28 and 21. Mm. And if I'm giving them any advice about their careers, it is get good at change. Get good at changing yourself individually and adapting mm. because you're going to have to have three, four, five different jobs in potentially different industries during your career. Mm. And would you also say that stopping at a certain point, as you did, and I think in the early 2000s, to take a serious view about executive education, so stopping to do your executive MBA, was that a useful pit stop for you as well? It was actually uh, probably one of the more critical decisions I've made during my career. Um, I think before that I was sort of floundering for about 10 years. When I say floundering, I was doing uh, interesting work. It was well paid. Um, it was challenging enough, but not too challenging. I had a great work-life balance. I was running marathons. It was, mm. it was a good time in my life. My career had been um, sub-optimised, um, as, as I'd like to say. Mm. But, um, but that decision to actually uh, get my career back, because I had a small business of my own where I was doing project management work, gun for hire stuff, and uh, pivotal in my decision was to actually uh, take on the executive MBA at QUT, at the business school here, in order to prepare myself for business-focused roles. As an IT project manager, you know, it's fun and exciting, but it's not where the action is. Mm. And so I, I realised at that time that I wanted to, to do more, I wanted to have greater impact, and I wanted to be able to contribute more and grow more. Mm. So, so the MBA was critical to me in being able to get new skills and a broader skill base that made me a credible person for an executive role. Mm, and obviously clearly successful. <laughs> it, it seems to have panned out okay so far. Yeah, it's and not it's over a, yet. Yeah, <laughs> yet. Well, it, uh, uh, well, 
it sounds like it, it's been a great investment for you. Um, and you've also topped that up with a bit of um, work at uh, Harvard as well. So um. Yeah, and that was probably um, uh, equally pivotal. Um, not in so much as what it enabled me to do in change, because I did that just prior to joining QR. Mm. But in terms of the fact that uh, the Advanced Management Program, if you know, mm. is their, their flagship executive education program, it's it's two months living uh, on the campus here at Harvard Business School with about 160 execs from all around the all world. All around the world. I think that's the yeah. real sort of value add there. So it, for, it for, is. for the it's, global leader. It, mm. It's enormously valuable. But, but back then in 2007, in that company, I was a total lightweight, a complete lightweight. Um, and there's days I'd pinch myself and think, oh my God, I'm sitting next to the guy who runs Coca-Cola in Europe having breakfast with him, or whatever the case may be. And that was you know, constantly like that. But what I found during that time, and people say to me, you know, what did you learn at Harvard? And I go, oh, you know, I don't know, and, you know stuff, yes, things I learned. But most importantly, it gave me the confidence that I could mix it with these people. These, these global executives mm. from big businesses who were so much more successful than I was at the time, and I could hold my own. Mm. And that gave me an enormous level of confidence that I could come back, and hopefully not in arrogance, but just an enormous level of confidence that I was capable of walking into any room and dealing with whatever I found in there, whether it was a board, whether it was a, you know, a client's management team, whatever the case may be. So incredibly valuable. Mm. Yes. It's, um, so you suddenly became credible to yourself, I suppose. <laughs> well, absolutely. You know I'm yeah. still working on that, Kate. But yes, at that stage, it certainly gave me a boost. I think we all are. Yeah. <laughs> but um, which brings us to your, you know, your current challenge um, as CEO of CS Energy. Um, so um, look, I'm just going off the script here that um, you, you uh, remain a government-owned um, organisation. Although I think when you were you were recruited, there was going to be a similar trajectory uh, with as with Horizon. So you were preparing the company for sale, but we changed uh, direction politically on that one. But um, you have just given us a wonderful narrative about um, what it takes to change a company's culture. So at the time, I, uh, again, you were preparing the organisation to be its best self, I suppose, at that time. What did you find when you came and what was, why was it imperative to you to take some action in terms of the organisational culture? Uh, good question. If I can remember back, it's uh, a lot of water under the bridge in the last almost four years since I've been in the role. Um, fundamentally, CS Energy was an engineering-based organisation. It was run by engineers for engineers. There was very, very little commercial acumen or nows, um, very little uh, efficiency in terms of capital investment. Uh, the focus on creating value was very weak and it was a big uh, emphasis on activity as opposed to creating value. And so um, walking in and seeing very obviously some of those things that you find in organisations, as I had done in QR when I first went in there, um, they're not hard to identify and observe. They're extraordinarily hard to change. And so this is why in the presentation I just gave to that group downstairs, uh, the concept of it's easier to buy in those skills than build them mm. uh, is, is very, very important. It's much easier than try and explain to someone uh, who spent their life driven by certain goals that they need to change what those goals are and what the framework is that they're thinking in. It's much easier to bring someone in who already has that and point to them and say, have a look at her over there. That's, that's what we're trying to do. Someone like her, the things that she does, the way she operates and the value she brings to the business, that's the new benchmark we're trying to set. And so without those sort of exemplars that you dot around the organisation, it's very hard to understand what changes are required. Mm. Mm. So that did you have an idea in your mind about the, the destination you were heading for? Very much, mm. yeah, yeah, very much. And look, I think safety is a, is a classic example because um, to boil it down very, very simply, we want the company to be as safe and profitable as it can possibly be. 
And when you ask Kate about, did I know what I was looking for? Safety is a great example because I had the opportunity when I was Horizon to go uh, to the US and uh, learn from the, well, I guess the company that's um, credited with being the safest organisation in the world, and that's the DuPont company. And well, they're the ones that they set up the chemical, the plant next to the leaders' homes. Was that the good? Yeah, yeah that one. DuPont, yeah, DuPont's a very interesting yeah. organisation. And as, a, as an innovation organisation, they invented nylon and they invented Teflon and a whole range of things mm. like that. But um, their history goes back, um, you know, well, 160, 170 years where they first started off manufacturing black powder. And the death rate of their workers back then in the 1800s was enormous. Uh, and so they decided way back when that they were going to become a very safe organisation, a safe place to work. And when you see it um, as we are in the 21st century, they've turned that into an art form. Now, they're not perfect. They have had fatalities in their organisation in the last several years. But, uh, but in terms of the, uh, the commitment they have to safety, the way they drive behavioural safety through their organisation, and when you walk into those sites, those operating sites, they're dealing with really nasty things in terms of, you know, um, nasty chemicals under heat and pressure, right? This is what their manufacturing operations are. And when you see how they operate those sites and the culture there and the way the leaders are, it is quite stark in comparison to what I would see when I work first walking into an organisation like either QR or CSNG, one of those. And to have a very clear picture in your head of the current state and then the desired target state is critical to being able to drive that change. So I've, I've seen what excellence looks like in safety. Mm. And I see where we are now and I know how far we have to go. But when I talk to some of the people who've been in CS Energy for 25 years, it's like you're trying to explain colour to a blind person. Yeah. Um, so you're, which I think is quite a provocative statement, it's easier to buy in people who know what that, they look, that looks like. So you don't necessarily have to take them on the long journey or change them if they don't necessarily want to be changed. So that's, that is quite your, your philosophy at the moment about um, how, to, how to drive your change. Uh, well, the fastest oh, between A and B. Yeah. It, it absolutely is, but mm. you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater mm. alternatively, right? Because you lose corporate memory, mm. you lose expertise and knowledge, and there's a hell of a lot of good people there mm. who, who directed differently are going to do a great job. So I've said for probably the last 10 years, the extent to which we can be successful with any cultural change is the extent to which it's a direct correlation, the extent to which we can actually blend the old with the new. Mm. We take the best of what we have in the organisation we find, and there's a lot of good there, and then we bring in the um, new perspectives and ways of doing things from outside that focus on different things like mm. commercial performance as opposed to mm -hmm. engineering performance, performance. Mm. and we have to blend those two. Mm. So you're making a cake and it's not an easy recipe. You did make uh, the case too that a burning platform helps, you know, if there's um, a place that we just cannot go back to and we have to burn our boats. So yes. I'm imagining at the beginning that was the, uh, the value proposition of um, a commercial sale. But yes. ab absent that, um, how do you keep the momentum, I suppose, that there is a burning platform for change in your organisation? Um, yeah, really good question because um, obviously the heat's come off a little bit, if you'll pardon the pun. Yes, um, we'll keep that metaphor going for but a what we're, <laughs> But what we're trying to do is worthwhile in its own right. Mm. So, so to be really open with you, um, when the imperative change from privatisation to holding the assets in current government ownership and moving forward with those, Running commercial assets that are competitive in a competitive market under government ownership is more difficult mm. than, than, than running free if you're in a private firm. And so I did think carefully about whether or not I still thought um, it was the right challenge for me personally and whether I thought I was the guy to lead that. Um, the conclusion I came to was that the, the things we were trying to do were worth it per se. 
it was worth it for the people, it was worth it for our owners, regardless of who they are. And just being able to say, when I walk out of that company eventually, I helped to make that safe and profitable was very, very important to me. Mm. And not only that, there's the energy industry in Australia is compellingly interesting at the moment. Oh, I it, would say, so. and that's a whole, probably a whole different podcast oh, about this. We're is. talking, you know, we try to keep on one message for the podcast, but you're in a very uh, dynamic space, I Absolutely. would say. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I mean, the focus of this po- podcast really is Australian business and, and adapting to environmental change, well, environmental uh, business environment, but you're in the hard energy um, space. So if I, if I spoke to you in maybe even just five years, what would you tell me is different about CS Energy? Um, I'd like to be able to tell you that I know that no one gets hurt there. That's the number one thing. Um, whether we make a million bucks or lose a million bucks here or there, it's in the, in the overall scheme of things, it's not that important. I can't tell you what our EBITDA was three years ago, but if we had seriously injured one of our people, that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Mm. So the thing that's there for me is the organisation is safe and I know it's a safer place because I was there. Mm. Um, I had, uh, not with this current board, with the previous board, the one that, that first brought me into CS Energy, I had a very, very heated discussion that went for maybe uh, three quarters of an hour over some of the safety risks we had in the organisation. And I was getting a, 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 an absolute grilling from one of the directors who was a, a very, very good director. And we generally see eye to eye on most things. But at the end of this, because he was asking very, very legitimate questions, at the end of it, I said to him, John, if I didn't think I could make a difference to this, I would not be here. And and I still believe I can make a difference. When that changes, I'll be gone before you know it. Mm. And that was it. And it was a it was a great discussion. I've I've been very fortunate to have very supportive boards, both both the current board and the previous board in CS Energy. Um, and uh, and they've added a lot of value to the business, but it doesn't mean it's all beer and skittles. Mm. And just to kind of uh, I guess close off on the change piece. Um, you did mention it's necessary to move people on if they really can't um, find their way uh, to the destination that you're trying to lead them to, and that's hard. Um, some people have come from this engineering culture um, and can't, and are, are very vested in that. I, I wonder, you've said to your daughters that you need to be able to embrace change like throughout our career, it's going to be important for everyone. And it's almost like a duty of care that you have with people that you have to try to persuade them that it's in their interest to, to, to shift their mindsets or change their behaviours or upskill, whatever they need to do. Um, how do we actually do that? Um, I mean, what, how, how do we persuade people that they need to embrace the waves of change just like we, we do, I suppose, um, higher up in the organisation? Mm. Um, Kate, I think I might have mentioned in the presentation downstairs earlier that um, I think as a leader, it's entirely arrogant and misguided to think that you can change anyone's view about anything. You did say that, it's, actually. It's, it's yeah. very, very rare that that happens. People change of their own accord. Mm. And the, one of the difficulties in, in managing change is to actually take people to where they don't know they want to Integrate, be, but yes. you know is good for them. Mm. Right? And that's, that's very, very difficult to mm. do. Um, in terms of how do you actually convince people, you can't convince them. You can mm. just lay out the facts mm. the way they are Mm. and help them and support them. Mm. But they'll ultimately make that choice. Yes, I suppose in, if, in a way has... it was quite a paternalistic question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, but people, yeah. people, make, people mm. make their own choices about this stuff. And I've, mm. made, I've seen people who are, and the real payback for me as a leader, is seeing people who actually the light goes on mm. and they, they realise what the value is in moving themselves from A to B mm. and, and not even as an organisation, just as an individual. To see that happen is enormously rewarding because you see the light come on in their eyes. People have been trudging around for years and years and years thinking, 
is this all there is? And then all of a sudden they can start to have impact, mm. they achieve things. And one of my core beliefs is that self-esteem is built from uh, attempting and achieving difficult things that you think you can't achieve when you set out. Mm. And that is an enormous um, uh, mechanism for building self-esteem. Perhaps it's the only one, I don't know. But, um, but Just, to um, see people build their self-esteem through the things they can achieve is, is why we do this. Mm. And when we look back on our own careers, so we have those... You know, those are the moments where uh, are most rewarding. Absolutely. Do you think, if, again, if I talk to you in five years, will you have a larger workforce, a smaller workforce, given the um, impact of automation and other technological change? I, I know we're um, on the record here, but it might be hard for you to answer. But, no, no, that's yeah. okay. Uh, we'll see this energy be larger or smaller. I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I won't be there in five or ten years. Okay. Like it's not a, I, I believe that everyone has a shelf life in a mm. role. Um, I'll get to my shelf life at some point in time where my impact reaches the point of diminishing returns and I'll move on. Mm -hmm. um, for me, uh, obviously, I want to paint on a bigger canvas. So I will seek an organisation after this role uh, that is larger, that gives me the ability to have more impact. And mm -hmm. when I say that, the implicit assumption is that it's positive impact. So it's, um, but, uh, but that's what I'm seeking. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll certainly um, mm -hmm. have that in the next move in my career. Yes. Uh, so, Martin, we always finish our Exec Insights podcast with a little segment called That's Interesting. So it's always good to know with the senior leaders what's piqued their, their imagination, uh, what they've read, what they've heard. Um, you actually gave us a bit of an example at the end of the presentation, which is a book I uh, must admit I had not heard of, What Money Can't Buy, um, author Michael J. Sandel. So tell us why that piqued your interest. Uh, well, look, I'm a, I'm a very, very strong believer in globalisation and free markets. Uh, it's not a perfect way of doing things, um, but it's probably the best and most efficient system we have. And I think uh, we've lifted a massive amount of uh, the world out of poverty um, over the last 20 plus years. Um, it's, it's enormously beneficial for pretty much everyone. Now, it's not to say that there aren't uh, downsides to it. And as technological progress comes through and globalisation comes through, um, we find, you know, for example, employment black spots where industries disappear and nothing comes in to take it. So it's not a perfect model, but I'm certainly a strong believer in, in the value of markets. Um, this book actually challenges some of those assumptions and it makes us think about uh, the moral limits of those markets. There are many examples in there where uh, the reader is asked to consider, even though there's a market that exists, that functions and has buyers and sellers, should it exist and is it morally right to exist? And it's the only book that um, in the last many, many years I've actually had to put down while reading to think and to actually absorb and to, to challenge myself on what it was actually telling me. Incredibly rewarding book and very, very, very well written, easy to read. Um, I'd recommend it to anyone. So thank you very much for your time. I know you're on Pleasure another flight <laughs> very soon, so we'll release you. And thank you for your contribution, QUT Exec Insights. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.